You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm Aaron Dietrich, your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond's content partner. Each week, we explore some aspect of the past, present, or future of intelligence and espionage. If you enjoy the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Coming up next on SpyCast... But since the Israeli intelligence chiefs believe that Egypt won't go to war and Syria won't go to war without Egypt, Egypt simply threw away this this information. They didn't use it at all. And uh, of course, this was a major, major mistake. This month marks the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, the most traumatic and memorable event in Israeli history. The war is known as one of Israel's most notable intelligence failures and is remembered as a major turning point in the trajectory of Israeli intelligence. This week on SpyCast, Andrew was joined by Yori Bar-Joseph, author of what some consider to be the authoritative account on the Yom Kippur intelligence failure, The Watchmen Fell Asleep. Yuri is a professor at Haifa University, veteran of the Yom Kippur War, and also wrote the book that inspired Netflix's 2018 film, The Angel, based on the story of Egyptian spy Ashraf Marwan. This episode is third in our five-part series on Israeli intelligence. Begin the series with a crash course in Israeli intelligence with Erez David Mazel. Then check out last week's episode with Uzi Arad. Stay tuned for an episode next week on Israel's top-secret special forces, Sayeret Metko. The original podcast on intelligence and espionage since 2006, We Are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Well, thanks ever so much for taking the time to speak to me, uh, Yuri. I really appreciate it. And uh, I really feel like I'm, I'm speaking to the perfect person to understand intelligence and the Yom Kippur War. You have wrote what's considered the book on it, The Watchman Fell Asleep. You wrote a book on Ashraf Marwan, one of the most important spies in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, and then you've written on intelligence success and failure. So I'm really excited to speak to you. <laughs> I hope you'll forgive my, uh, my excitement at times. Uh, I think the first thing to ask, if you don't mind, where were you? when the Yom Kippur War happened, if you were old enough to remember it? Well, I was, uh, thank you, I was uh, old enough to remember, actually. I was already a reserve soldier. I was called up to arms uh, like everybody else uh, when the war broke out at around half past one. 
Um, and uh, in the morning of the second day of the war, I was already in the Swiss front. We arrived at 10 o'clock in the morning, something like this. We didn't know what's going on. Uh, it was obviously a complete surprise to everyone, including the simple soldiers. Um, and uh, that's it. I spent uh, the whole uh, war in, in, the, in the Egyptian front and later in what we called Africa, that is the um, western side of the Suez Canal, was occupied by the IDF during that. And I think it would be quite interesting as well, just for our listeners who aren't Jewish, could you just tell our listeners why Yom Kippur is important? I'm just trying to get across the significance of the day. Well, Yom Kippur is the holiest uh, day in uh, the Jewish calendar. Um, unlike uh, Sabbath, uh, on Yom Kippur, you don't do anything. There is no traffic, no radio, no TV, nothing. People are just going to the synagogues and spend most of the day in the synagogues. And in this sense, the, the matter of fact that there were no, there was no media, no radio, no TV, nothing uh, during that day made it on one on the one hand quite complicated to 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 tell people to that that war is coming. Uh, on the other, um, it made it uh, easier for the reserve forces to get to the front because there were no other vehicles on the roads and uh, the mobilization of the reserve forces went very smoothly in part because it was young people. And how did you find out about that, that you were being called up if there was no media and, and so forth? Was it sirens? Well, first of all, we saw some traffic in on on the road, uh, which is again, it is uh, very strange. On Yom Kippur, you could see some cars here, some cars there. Then there was uh, a, an Israeli Air Force aircraft that flew in the sky, signaling that something happens. Also, people started calling to one another. Some of my friends were called to arms an hour or so before me, so they called me. The telephone did work. Um, and uh, it was obvious that something happened. And then at uh, about uh, five minutes or at two o'clock in the afternoon, uh, the sirens went on and everyone opened the radio and it was obvious that we have a war. I, I just want to help our listeners understand that before we start digging into uh, intelligence a bit more, a, a bit deeper. So um, correct me if I'm wrong in any of this. I just want to give them an initial understanding. <laughs> it's a war that takes place 50 years ago. Israel was only 25 at the time. And this year is also the 75th anniversary of the Israeli Declaration of Independence. And the wars between Israel on the one side and Egypt and Syria on the other. And as I understand it, uh, we can get into Egyptian motivations later Syria wants to destroy Israel. Egypt has more limited uh, objectives. Uh, and then against the background of this, the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, superpower politics play out in the war as well. Is that a decent-ish summary of where we are and a good jumping point to go forward? Uh, in a way, I wouldn't say that Syria wanted to destroy Israel or Syria wanted to destroy Israel, but the Syrians realized that uh, with the balance of forces, they cannot achieve this goal. So the, what the Syrians wanted was to uh, 
occupied the Golan Heights, which were occupied by Israel in the Sixth Day War of 1967, that is six, six years before the Yom Kippur War. Um, the Egyptians wanted to get uh, a hold in the Sinai in order to start to advance uh, a diplomatic process to get the whole of Sinai. On the Syrian side, uh, Iraq sent its task forces, which arrived at the front at, uh, on October 12th and changed the balance of forces between Syria and Israel. If they didn't arrive there, maybe the Damascus would have been under uh, a threat by the advancing Israeli forces. Uh, other than that, more or less, yes, the, the, the Americans were on the Israeli side, the Soviets on the Arab side. And can you just give our listeners a brief summary of why the war broke out? Well, briefly, it's difficult. It's a complicated, <laughs> it's a complicated question, and until today, we don't have solid, good enough answers. But as I said before, um, Israel occupied uh, in the war of 1967, the Six Day War. It occupied the whole of Sinai, Sinai Desert, which is about 60 thousand square kilometers and the Golan Heights, which was a smaller, uh, it is about 600 uh, square kilometers. Um, and uh, it also occupied the West Bank uh, uh, from Jordan. And the goal of the Arab states since this war was to get the occupied territories back. Um, the Egyptians um, combined um, political means with military means. They uh, started in what we call a war of attrition um, in 1969, and it lasted for a year, a little bit more than a year, with heavy casualties to both sides, but they didn't move the Israelis from the Sinai from the Suez Canal. The Syrians conducted uh, all sorts of activities against the Israelis, but again, they didn't threaten the Israeli hold in the Golan Heights. Um, and uh, during the, between 1970, mid-1970 to the outbreak of the war, 1973, there was the border with Egypt was quiet. The Egyptians threatened to go to war. At the same time, they also uh, gave signals that they are ready to negotiate with Israel on the basis of uh, we return the Sinai to the Egyptians. They give us peace or something sort of a peace, which is the same formula that is valid until today, uh, territories for peace. Um, and uh, and uh, the Israelis realized that at a certain stage, war, a major war, might break out, and this lays the background to uh, the intelligence issues uh, that we're going to discuss now. And just before we go on to them, it's quite interesting to me, when you look at the various wars, 1948, 67, and 73, in 48 we have five Arab armies. In 67, we have three. In 1973, we have two. What explains this falling off of the amount of Arab armies? Well, uh, 
It's a difficult question. Uh, in general, um, Israel proved its military power. In 1948, no one knew what's the military power of the Jewish state. Actually, the, when, when the Arab armies invaded the Jewish state, it was one day old. We had only uh, very limited military power, but nevertheless, uh, Israel won this war against three, four Arab armies. Um, in 67, no one wanted the war, perhaps the Syrians, but Israel didn't want war, Egypt didn't want war, the Jordanians suddenly didn't want war. And nevertheless, uh, it was uh, an unintended crisis that escalated, and at the end there was no other choice to Israel but going to, to war and proved Israeli superb military superiority over the Arab armies. Uh, it defeated three Arab armies in something like six days uh, and occupied a lot of Arab territories. And after that war, it became obvious that it's very dangerous to, to go to war against Israel. And uh, the, the motivation uh, of the Arab states to do so was only to get back the territories that were occupied in 1967, uh, since it was only territories of Jordan, Jordan, Syria, and Egypt. And since Jordan was very hesitant and had special relations with Israel. It was obvious that uh, the only candidates to go to war against Israel were Syria and Egypt. They had a lot to gain, a lot to lose, but other Arab states, they could send uh, some forces, but they didn't have any, any motivation to participate. And the 1967 war, uh, because of Israel's stunning success, this sets up the preconditions for the Yom Kippur War because Israel had a false sense of security. It had maybe too much confidence in itself and this allowed the watchmen to fall asleep. <laughs> How much does 67 lead up to 73? It led up in the sense that it created the conditions for the war, the motivation of Egypt and Syria uh, to go to war in order to gain a victory, not to, to defeat Israel, but to gain a victory, to, to, to gain some achievements in, in, in occupying a territory, mostly in order, especially from the Egyptian point of view, in order to uh, initiate a political diplomatic process that would lead to the uh, end of the Israeli occupation of the Sinai. With the Syrians, we don't know exactly what uh, they wanted, but uh, it seems like uh, the Syrians were far more militant than the, the Egyptians then. In Israel, yes, it, uh, the 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 stunning victory of 1967 uh, gave us confidence, but it was confidence that was built on genuine military superiority over the Arabs, not uh, you know, a false uh, uh, feeling that uh, we are strong and no one will deal with us. Uh, the Israeli army uh, proved to be uh, superior to the Arab armies in many incidents and also during of what we call the static war with Egypt along the, the Swiss Canal. Um, and in, in there, the Israelis 
almost did whatever they wanted. They, they shut down many, I think that the ratio between uh, lost airplane was something like 1 to 20, 25 uh, during these six years of many clashes. Uh, same is true with regard to armored Israeli uh, tank teams proved to be far better than the uh, colleagues on the other side. So the sense that uh, the confidence of, of the Israelis with regard to the ability to, to, to win the next war was based on genuine power, on genuine results, uh, except that no one accepted, expected um, a major uh, surprise at the beginning of the war, which would lead to uh, two, three days of uh, major setbacks to the Israeli army. And that's about it. And that leads on to uh, my next question. So intelligence, before the war breaks out, what are some of the intelligence that's coming in? Because it's not like there's no intelligence whatsoever and then it's a complete surprise. There are Ashraf Marwan and there's uh, Jordans playing a role and there's other things going on. So can you just tell the listeners what's the background to this? What other intelligence is coming in? Okay, uh, let me start with what we may call the conception of the intelligence warning prior to the war. Until 1967, um, the Egyptian army could deploy next to the Israeli border, which meant that uh, the, the Egyptian uh, tanks could deploy something like uh, 60 kilometers from Tel Aviv. After the Six-Day War, um, the, the whole of Sinai was occupied and the Israeli tanks now were 100 and something kilometers from Egypt and the Egyptian tanks were 150, 200 miles from, from Tel Aviv. So in this sense, it gave us a sense of self-assurance that Tel Aviv is not under threat. Nevertheless, it was clear that, uh, let me put it this way, before 1967, the Israeli army knew when the Egyptian army enters into the Sinai and deploys along the border. After 1967, the whole Egyptian army was deployed along the Suez Canal. And this meant that for the Egyptians, it was, for the Egyptians, it was very easy to start a war without any prior, uh, preparations. Uh, so the main task of the Israeli intelligence, this Israeli military intelligence, which was in charge of of intelligence estimates, uh, national intelligence estimates in, in 1973, its main task, its main priority was uh, to provide a warning uh, if the Egyptians go to war, are going to, to launch a general attack on, on the Israeli forces along the Suez Canal. And in order to do it, um, Israel deployed a lot in building up means of collections that would provide this warning. And the means of collection were mainly um, SIGINT means. We built uh, uh, some facilities in the Sinai, very close to the border. Um, with, uh, we could hear when the Egyptian, we, we, the Israeli 
what we call A200 to the, the Israeli SIGINT, IDF SIGINT unit, uh, listen to all the uh, traffic in the Egyptian uh, wireless communication. And uh, with, we, we also could know when an Egyptian aircraft takes takes off in an Egyptian uh, uh, airbase, uh, things like that. We monitored very closely the, um, the activity of the Egyptian army and, uh, and the, the, the assumption was that if Egypt wants to go to war, intends to go to war, we will know about it three, four, five days ahead because the Egyptians will have to make preparations and we know what these preparations are. We know what are the warning signals and, and uh, we can collect them. And of course, the warning will be given on the basis of these warning signals. In addition, Israel had also uh, some excellent um, human sources in, in Egypt. Uh, these sources were operated by the Mossad, not by military intelligence. Most important among them was indeed Ashraf Marwan, who was the son-in-law of President Nasser, who, who until today is considered the most important, uh, the biggest leader in the uh, modern Arab history. Uh, he was married to his daughter, and after Nasser passed away in September 1970, Marwan became a very close aide of, to Sadat, who replaced Nasser. And in this sense, we had Israeli intelligence, the Mossad, the source that I don't think um, any other intelligence service had uh, at the heart of the Egyptian decision-making uh, uh, center. Uh, and so that, and, and Mawang gave us everything, not only verbal estimates, but also all the documents that we needed. The only person that I can think of that's similar to Ashraf Marwan is the uh, Soviet uh, spy who was w w Willie Brandt's uh, advisor in the, the West German government. Uh, uh, how should I put it? Uh, the main difference is that neither East Germany nor the Soviet Union intended to attack West Germany or, or the West. And in this sense, the uh, information that Guillaume uh, had given was mostly political, uh, not military. Uh, Ashraf Marwan, on the other hand, gave Israel everything. And when I say everything, I mean, first of all, he gave us the detailed book of the order of battle of the Egyptian army, then all the Egyptian war plans, then the protocols of the discussions of the Egyptian high command, the Egyptian uh, cabinet, the, the talks of Sadat with foreign leaders, exchanges between, letters exchanged between Sadat and Brezhnev and Kosygin, Everything that you wanted, Marwan gave us. Of course, all the arms that uh, Egypt received from the Soviet Union, we knew ahead because he gave us the contracts before the arms even arrived in Egypt. Egypt was an open book 
in this sense for 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 the Israelis. Um, and uh, yes, my one was really a sort of a once in a lifetime spy. Mm-hmm. And let's just uh, talk a little bit more about Marwan. So, can you tell our listeners how he was recruited by Mossad? Well, he was a walk-in. Uh, until today, we don't know exactly what was his motivation. In part, it was uh, greed. In part, uh, there were some psychological uh, frustrations. Uh, there were uh, the lot of accounts about Mawan um, being uh, Nasser didn't trust Mawan. Uh, he didn't. He wanted his daughter to get divorced from Mawan. Uh, things like that. And Mawan was very ambitious. And there is a speculation that he wanted to. Uh, take revenge of Nasser, something like this, and the best way to take revenge is to work for his uh, enemies, arch enemies. Um, and other than that, uh, once Mawan offered his services and was recruited, it became a routine. Uh, he, just, uh, he just became, I think that he identified with the Israeli, with the Israeli uh, side for one reason or another. I mean, you really cannot make this kind of story up, can you? This is one of the reasons why the history of uh, intelligence and espionage is so fascinating. The son-in-law of Egypt's most revered leader in the modern era, uh, an advisor to Sadat, his successor, uh, just giving over everything order of battle. I mean, it's really hitting the jackpot, isn't it, in that sense? Yes. Um, I mean, I, I saw the information that uh, Mawan passed to Israel in the year before the war. I mean, I saw, I didn't see the whole accounts, but just the main bits and pieces. And it's amazing. He just, we know what happened in Egypt during this year. We know who Sadat met, when did he make the decision, what decisions were made, etc., etc. And when you compare what we know about Egypt and the information that Sadat is that Marwan gave us, it is identical. He gave us everything. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com.
now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. So some of our listeners may be thinking, so if Marwan gave us everything, we had the source at the heart of Egyptian government, uh, and then if we had uh, Sigan along the bar lev line, well, how was Israel s- surprised then? Was this an intelligence failure? What, what's kind of going on here? First of all, it was a major intelligence failure compared to Pearl Harbor and Barbarossa. It was, it was a bigger intelligence failure. Let me add one more item to show how, how, um, how major was this failure? Um, the Israelis were aware that uh, the Egyptian army can deploy along the Suez Canal for three purposes. One was um, to uh, to attack Israel. The other was um, to make exercises. They did two major large-scale exercises of crossing the canal and occupying the Sinai. Uh, they made two large-scale exercises like this every year. And uh, the third uh, possibility was that uh, the Egyptians are afraid that the Israelis are going to attack and therefore they deployed their army. And the Israelis were aware of the fact that uh, we cannot called about 80% of the Israeli ground forces in 1973 were reserve forces. And you cannot call the reserve forces to arms uh, whenever uh, the Egyptians are making an exercise. So we needed to know uh, when the Egyptians plan to go to war and when they plan to, to make a regular exercise or they're just afraid of an Israeli attack. And this was a problem that uh, was discussed in the intelligence echelons, and um, they found a, pro- a solution to this problem. And the solution was the use of special means, what we call special means of collection. Today we know a lot about them. I revealed the nature in my new book about uh, the war. Can you give us? Can you give us a test? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, the, these were mainly two listening devices that were planned uh, on telephone lines, major telephone lines and or strategic telephone lines, and not they were not the regular means of collection that were signal collection that were uh, uh, listening to wireless uh, traffic. And the assumption was that the Egyptians know that we listen to the uh, wireless traffic, so they will use the telephone lines. After all, you cannot go to war without talking about it. And this means of collection, one of them was um, operated by a nuclear battery. 
uh, it was a heavy, heavy, uh, heavy stuff. It was planted uh, in February 1973, and uh, it operated very well. And together with another uh, similar uh, means of collection that was operated by regular batteries, Israel was certain, the Israelis were certain that we will know when the Egyptians plan to go to war and when they do just a regular exercise or, or, or they're just worried about an Israeli attack. And in the months um, before the war, um, the traffic that went through this means proved to be authentic, reliable, and so uh, everyone counted on this means to provide the warning about the coming war. Not uh, Ashraf Mawan wasn't supposed to give a war warning. He didn't have um, a radio set. He couldn't communicate with the Israelis from Cairo. So he had to get out to Europe and to meet his handlers in the Mossad. And all this took some time and wasn't clear whether he can get out of Egypt or cannot get out of Egypt. We didn't count, we didn't count on Ashraf Mawan to provide a warning. The warning was supposed to come from the, uh, this special means of collections, collection which uh, were operated by military intelligence and military intelligence was the one that was supposed to, to provide the war warning. The Israeli leaders, Prime Minister Golda Meir, Defense Minister uh, Moshe Dayan, of course, the Chief of Staff and others, they knew about the special means of collection. They relied on them. They expected that the word of war will come from them. This is it for the time being. There is a surprise later. So it's not Ashraf Marwan's responsibility to let Israel know when Egypt's, Egypt's about to attack. We've got these special means of collection. Where were these special means of collection? Was this, were these in Egypt? In Egypt. In Egypt. Yeah. Uh, so why didn't they provide the warning, or did they? Okay, uh, here we come to the main question of, with this excellent means of collection, how come Israel was surprised? This is, of course, the main question. And the answer to this is complicated a little bit, but I'll try to simplify it. In the year or so before the war, Military intelligence in Israel, which, as I said, was in charge of national intelligence estimate, including providing a war warning, developed what we call the conception. The conception said that we know that the Egyptians don't perceive themselves as capable of going to war against Israel because they cannot neutralize the superiority of the Israeli Air Force. They know that they cannot cross the canal without neutralizing the Israeli Air Force, which was a major air force in 1973. Moreover, they uh, need means to deter Israel from the Israeli Air Force from attacking, bombing Egyptian cities like Cairo in case of war. And we knew that the Egyptians would need two main weapon systems before they go to war. One was the uh, MiG-23, the Soviet-made MiG-23, 
which was considered to be, we didn't know, I mean, the Americans didn't know much about the MiG-23 also in 1973, but it was more or less uh, close to the American F-4 Phantom uh, jet, which was the, the, the best uh, attack plan in, in, during that time. And Israel had over 100 Phantoms. The Egyptians had nothing like this. So the Egyptians expected, ex waited to get the MiG-23. The Soviets couldn't provide it because it just entered service in, in the Soviet Union. And it was obvious that before 1975, the Egyptians won't be able to get the, the MiG-23. Uh, in order to deter Israel from attacking Egyptian cities, uh, the Egyptians thought in terms of getting surface-to-surface uh, um, -surface missiles. They spoke about they, they wanted to get a SCAD missile, uh, Soviet-made SCAD missile with a range of about 300, kilom 300 kilometers, 180 miles, which could reach Tel Aviv and north of Tel Aviv and thus deter Israel from attacking Cairo. And the intelligence conception was that as long as Egypt doesn't have these two means of war or these two weapon systems, um, Egypt won't go to war. This was a logical, a logical assumption. And we know I mean, we, it, it wasn't only an assumption, it was we also had it, this information from the documents that Marwan gave us. We saw the discussions of the uh, Egyptian high command, Sadat and the Egyptian generals, and they told him, we cannot go to war against Israel because the Israeli Air Force is too strong and we cannot neutralize it. And Sadat accepted it. Except that... In October 1972, that is a year before war started, Sadat decided to go to war even without this means, without these two weapon systems, without the MiG-23 and the SCAD missiles. Uh, and he ordered the Egyptian army to prepare uh, a war, a general, a large-scale invasion of the Sinai, but with very limited territorial goals. And this was the answer of the Egyptian army to the Israeli uh, superiority in the air. Because if the Egyptian army advances only eight kilometers, that is about five miles, into the Sinai, it will still be protected by Egyptian surface-to-air missile uh, layout, very large layout, uh, west of the Suez Canal. If they advance another five miles, then they're out of the range of the uh, surface-to-air missiles, and they'll be a prey for the Israeli uh, uh, phantoms. So uh, they decided to go to launch a war, um, and, but, but with very limited uh, territorial goals. And to cut the story short, uh, the Israeli... The senior uh, analysts in uh, the Israeli uh, military intelligence, those who were in charge of providing the war warning, they believed until the very last moment that the Egyptians will be deterred. They don't have the aircraft, so they won't go to war. Um, and therefore, despite the fact that we saw all the Egyptian army gather and deploys for war along the Suez Canal, um, 
the uh, uh, military intelligence didn't provide a war warning until the very last moment. Now comes the story of the special means of collection. Why, why didn't they provide any information about the coming war? And here it is very tricky. The, uh, the director of military intelligence, who was uh, a very strong man in the security establishment, a general by the name of Eli Zahira, he was an ardent believer in the conception that Egypt won't go to war without aircraft. And he was worried that if we use this special means of collection, the Egyptians will find out about them. So uh, despite the fact that um, the Egyptian army deployed for war under the guise of um, routine military exercise, and despite the fact that many elements in this exercise were uh, very strange, they, they uh, didn't exist in routine earlier exercises, he refused to operate this means of collection. Uh, for fear that they, if, if operated, they'll fall to the Egyptian hands. In fact, until the morning of October 6th, that is the day when war started, he didn't operate them. Even worse, um, since he was a general with a um, lot of, um, how should I call it, uh, self-assuredness, he told when when... Defense Minister Moshe Dayan, when the chief of staff asked him about what's going on in Egypt, uh, what do we get from the special means of collection, um, he said nothing, all is quiet. He didn't tell them that he didn't operate these means. And they knew that war cannot break out without information coming from these means. And therefore, they also underestimated the Egyptian threat until the very last moment. At the end, what the one who brought us the, 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 the information that Egypt is going to launch war was Ashraf Mawan, who succeeded to get out of Egypt and met um, a day before the war. A few hours before war started, he met the head of the Mossad in, in London and told him war will start tomorrow, and this started gearing Israel to war. And uh, just on the Air Force, is part of the reason that uh, Israeli aerial superiority was so strong? Is it because they destroyed a lot of Egypt and Syria's air force during the '67 war? Well, uh, they they destroyed in the first hour of the war most of the Egyptian air force uh, on the ground, attacking the Egyptian with a surprise attack, major surprise attack. Uh, destroying the Egyptian Air Force on the ground, then the Syrian Air Force. The, the point was that uh, the Israeli, in every dogfight between Israeli and uh, Arab uh, fighters, the Israelis uh, won. And as I said, the, the, the shutdown, uh, shooting down uh, uh, ratio was about 20 to 1 for every Israeli airplane that was shot down, about 20 Arab. Uh, our plans were shot down. We had far better aircraft. We had American aircraft, the Phantom and uh, Skyhawk and some other. The Egyptians 
use the MiG-21, which is a good uh, good uh, fighter, but uh, um, the, in general, the Egyptian and the Syrian uh, pilots were not as good as the Israeli pilots. Um, this was also one of the, the reasons for um, the self-assuredness of the Israelis before the war. They will not go to war because they are going to lose it. We see what happens all the time. Hmm. And just going back to the special means of collection, so help me uh, just understand this if I'm if I'm getting it wrong. So there was a special means of collection. The chief of Amman, Israel's military intelligence, uh, thought that if something's going to happen, it will happen on these lines, and we'll know. Um, but the Egyptians don't mention this on the lines, so that's why. Now, now help me understand okay. it. Or did... The story is this. In June 1973, another special, not such an important means of collection, uh, that was a listening device to Egyptian telephone lines, uh, fell accidentally to Egyptian hands. Uh, they found it accidentally. And it was clear that now that the Egyptians understand what the Israelis are doing, they listen to our telephone lines, uh, they will look for other means, similar means of collection. So uh, it was decided to that as long as there is no danger of war, uh, we'll just we, we turn off this special means of collection. Until June, when they operated, we listened to the Egyptian lines and we knew what happens. Um, but then they were turned off. And it was obvious that if the, the tension will rise, then the, the means will be operated again because the, the task was to provide a warning about war. There is, you want to keep them safe, but not at the cost of not getting a warning to war. It's absurd. But since the director of military intelligence of Amman was so certain that the Egyptians will not go to war, he, he ordered not to operate the means. Now, a number of officers, high-ranking officers in military intelligence, including the, the, the one who was in charge of the SIGINT unit and the one who was in charge of collection, in military intelligence, and the one, the chief analyst, and they all told him, we have to use this means. This is, we, there is a tension, and, but he was so certain that nothing will happen uh, so that he um, prohibited the, uh, the use of this means. The first time that they were, they were used, as I said, was on the morning, the early morning hours of October 6th, that is about 10 hours before war started. And I have, in my new book, I published a, a report about how they were tested because they were tested now and then for a couple of minutes. You just listened to see that they work. Uh, they were tested on uh, the night uh, of October 4th and October 5th. Uh, and I have the report how they were tested. They were tested for a few seconds here, a few seconds there, and that's it. And I published this report in the new book. But everyone, in, including the chief of staff of the Israeli army, including 
the, the, the Minister of Defense, they were certain that these means are working. This is the most hideous crime uh, they can, you can do in, in, in a country like Israel. It's not that you don't operate these means because you're worried about the future. Okay, this is understandable. But that you tell your superiors that they work while they don't work and uh, that they don't provide any warning because there is nothing going through these lines and this way you make them certain that war is not coming is, is a major crime. There's been lots of interpretations of how Israel was surprised uh, and, and during the Yom Kippur War. Um, there's been various things, Moshe Dayan, Golda Meir, but historically, if you just look at the documents, all the evidence points towards Eli Zaira because his sub- immediate subordinates were telling him to turn it on. He didn't turn it on. And then he effectively lied to his superiors, the chief of staff and the defense minister, uh, so he, uh, for, for, from both angles, he's the person that all the evidence points to as being the uh, the crux of the intelligence failure. Is that correct? It is correct, except that there were some others also uh, in the analytical uh, department of of the of military intelligence. Most important among them was the chief uh, analyst of Egyptian affairs who was only a lieutenant colonel, but he was very influential because he was the expert on Egyptian affairs, and he categorically also believed that Egypt is not going to war. And he gave, the, if you want, the professional support to the era uh, with regard to the estimation that Egypt, what we see, is not a war. But, of course, this officer, this lieutenant colonel, he wasn't in charge of the special means of collection. He didn't, wasn't the one who, who made the decisions about them. And uh, um, in this sense, uh, most of the uh, responsibility for the intelligence failure falls on the, on the shoulders of the U.S. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and it sounds like the lieutenant colonel and head of, at the head of Egyptian analysis I mean, he made a bad judgment call uh, in the futurology that is intelligence. You don't get everything correct, but he made a professional call and he got it wrong. Eli Zaira, he made a bad judgment call and, you know, he's entitled to do that as the head of a man. He can make a call one way or another. He listens to his subordinates and then he makes a call, but where he's qualitatively different from the lieutenant colonel is that he lied to the chief of staff and the defense minister. So the chief of staff and the defense minister were given imperfect information to the prime minister, Goldemeyer. Yes, this is is more or less a situation, except that I have to emphasize one more thing. Um, We got a lot of information about the Egyptian and the Syrian intention to go to war and about their deployment to war, to go to war. And, um, and measures were taken. The Israeli regular army deployed along the border in the 48 hours before, before the war, or 24 hours before the war. 
as I said before, about 80% of the Israeli uh, uh, ground forces were uh, reserve soldiers, like myself. And um, as long as there was no war alert by the military intelligence, uh, the Israeli uh, policymakers and the chief of staff didn't think that there was a need to... Uh, uh, to mobilize the, the reserve forces, because we knew for sure it was, this was, we knew that uh, uh, we'll get the warning from military intelligence through these special means of collection at least 48 hours before com war comes out, and 48 hours is enough time to, to, to deploy the forces in the Golan and the, to make a major deployment in the Sinai. Uh, and the, the, the warning came only uh, eight, ten hours before the war, before war started, um, and not from this means of collection, but from Ashraf Mawan. And although Israel knew about it ten hours before, they didn't call up the reserves straight away. They wanted to wait until Egypt struck first, is that correct? Uh, I, I remember reading somewhere that Moshe Dayan, uh, and I could, you know, you're the expert, uh, he said, uh, you know, we need to let them attack first. We can't be seen as the, as the aggressor. Help our listeners understand that if they knew 10 hours before, why didn't they act immediately? Why did they wait for the, the Egyptians to attack? Well, there are two issues. One is uh, whether there were two issues. One was uh, whether to launch a preemptive airstrike. Um, and there was a planned uh, airstrike, a uh, preemptive airstrike that could destroy the Syrian uh, surface-to-air missiles in the Golan sites in the Golan. Um, and on this issue, it was clear to the Israelis since 1967 that since we have new borders, we have now territorial depth, um, the Americans will not let us launch a preemptive strike or start a war. Uh, they hardly uh, allowed us to do it in 1967 when we didn't have uh, this territorial debt. Obviously, after the 67, the, the preemptive strike was out of the question. And uh, it was clear in all the Israeli, the IDF military plan that the war will be, that the, the Egyptians will start the war. The first shot will be Egyptian, not Israel. On the morning of October 6th, the morning of, of uh, uh, when, when war broke, broke out, uh, it was a desperate situation. No one expected that war might break out when the Israeli forces are not deployed for war. We, we counted on the intelligence warning, and it didn't come on time. So the uh, chief of staff tried to get uh, permission for a preemptive strike, and the political echelon told him, no, you don't have it. The second issue was the mobilization of the reserve forces. And here there was no problem to, reserve, to, to mobilize them. The Americans never said a word about it. It was clear that if Israel feels that it needs to mobilize the forces in order to defend itself, Israel can do it. Um, there was a delay of about uh, three hours, in three, four hours, in the uh, mobilization of the forces, not because of fear of American reaction, 
but uh, because mainly because Diane, Minister of Defense, still didn't believe that the war will break out. And in addition, everyone expected the war to break out at six o'clock in the evening, not at two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and and altogether, this led to uh, to the decision to mobilize the Israeli Reserve Army only at nine o'clock in the morning. The warning from Ashraf Marwan arrived in Israel at about four o'clock in, in 4 a.m. So it was something like four or five hours difference. It didn't make much difference. Tell me if I'm wrong in this, but I read somewhere that King Hussein of Jordan, he tipped off to the Israelis that the Egyptians and the Syrians were up to something. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, there is a fame, there was a famous meeting between Israel Prime Minister Golda Meir and King Hussein of Jordan on uh, September 25th. That is about uh, two weeks less than two weeks before war started. King Hussein asked Golda, he, he met Golda Meir regularly on many issues. Of course, these were very secret meetings, um, but uh, there was a, a sort of cooperation uh, in, in security affairs between the Israelis and the Jordanians. We had the Yasser Arafat as a, a common uh, enemy. And Hussein didn't want a new war in the Middle East. He was worried. I mean, he lost uh, the West Bank in the 1967 war. He was worried that another war would lead to the collapse of Jordan. So um, when he learned that uh, the Syrians, he learned more about the Syrians because the Jordanian intelligence had very excellent sources in the Syrian army. He learned that uh, the Syrians plan to go to war soon. He came to Tel Aviv, or near Tel Aviv, to meet Golda Meir. And they met, and he told her that uh, the Syrian army deploys, and it is in what, he, in his words, in pre-jump positions. And Golda Meir asked him, will they attack without the Egyptians? And he said, no, they are going to attack together with the Egyptians. They are coordinating. This is something that we knew for 20, 30 years from now. Now, um, what we didn't know was that uh, together with the king came his uh, intelligence chief, and he met the head of the Mossad, the chief of the Mossad, and uh, another senior intelligence officer from military intelligence. And he provided the Israelis something like uh, two weeks before the war, the Syrian war plan. Three divisions will, three uh, infantry divisions will attack here, here, and here. Two armor divisions will attack here, here, and here. And he gave us all the details. But since the Israeli intelligence chiefs believe that Egypt won't go to war and Syria won't go to war without Egypt, the Egypt simply threw away this, this information. They didn't use it at all. And uh, of course, this was a major, major mistake, another example of excellent information that wasn't used before the war. 
that to me is a is a twist in the plot. Eli that we spoke about earlier, the head of a man. So he, we spoke about him being on the hook uh, to a considerable extent. But if Golda Meir has a meeting with King Hussein and they have excellent sources inside Syria and they say, listen, they're going to attack. Uh, and, you know, you if you're a leader, you can't just say, well, my subordinate said this. Ultimately, you know, the buck stops with you. So you have to make a judgment call. So if I'm the prime minister, I'm just being hypothetical here. If I'm the prime minister and, and someone that I have a close relationship with who has uh, excellent intelligence sources in a country and whose intelligence chief hands over the order of battle for an upcoming uh, attack, surely she's culpable as well. If you're getting this kind of information coming in and you just say oh well there's the conception and the head of a man doesn't think it will happen like at some point you've just got to say something doesn't feel right here let's you know let's not let's not mobilize everybody but let's just escalate a little bit just to make sure that if there is a surprise attack we're we're going to be in a decent position to at least hold the line until we can mobilize everyone yes it makes sense what you say makes sense and uh, i tend to agree uh, but uh, there are a few points that we should remember. Um, first of all, uh, on two prior occasions, at the end of 1972 and at the end, and in April 1973, uh, the Mossad brought excellent information that Egypt plans to go to war soon. And King Hussein of Jordan informed the Israeli that Syria will join the war and nothing happened. So this was the third time. It was a cry wolf uh, syndrome, typical cry wolf syndrome. Uh, then Golda Meir was worried, very worried. And uh, during her meeting with Hussein, or immediately after her meeting with Hussein, she called Bayan, the Minister of Defense, and told him, uh, King Hussein says this and this, what happens? And Bayan promised to, to check it. And indeed, he checked it with military intelligence, and military intelligence gave him a solid answer. We know the Jordanians are worried. They said this once, twice. This is the third time. We have our own estimates. We don't see Egypt going to war against Israel. The Syrians will not go without the Egyptians. Um, the, maybe the Syrians will do a small attack in the Golan Heights, but, but that's it. And... Um, this was the estimate that Golda received, and she was a civilian, and she had a lot of respect to the Israeli intelligence, which until then proved to be excellent. And uh, one way or another, she accepted the uh, judgment. Uh, we can blame Golda Meir for many things, but not for this uh, mishap. And what happens to Eli Zaira after the war? What was his his story? Well, he he was relieved from his position as director of military intelligence and became a private citizen. And he wrote his memoirs and tried to prove that the blame for the failure was with the Mossad and not with, with, with him. And some journalists really believed him. Um, but the most... Um, Another twist in this story is that, of course, Elizair knew who, that, uh, who Ashraf Marwan was, who was the miraculous source of Israel in Egypt. And um, as a means to prove uh, that 
Ashraf Mahwan was uh, a double agent who uh, lied to the Israelis, to deceive the Israelis. He exposed to journalists identity or details about the identity of Ashraf Mahwan. And at the end, one of them published his name. And uh, there was an official investigation. How come the, the identity of Ashraf Mawan was exposed? And this, the, the, the rule was that Eli Zahira uh, leaked his name to journalists in order to, to put the blame on the Mossad for the failure in 1973. And shortly after the conclusions of these investigations uh, became public, Ashraf Mawan was found dead um, in London after falling from the terrace of his apartment in London. Uh, were, you, were you involved in that operation? Were you one of the, the June circle, the Egyptians? Well, I was a soldier, as you know, I was shelled. I didn't, as far as I know, I didn't kill anyone and I wasn't killed in the war. That's what I remember from the war. <laughs> Our problem as Israelis wasn't lack of information. We had excellent information. The, the problem was in the interpretation of, of this excellent information. It was a failure. Mm. So it's not a failure of collection, it's a failure of synthesis and distribution? It is a failure of first and foremost of estimation. Uh, the Israeli, the main culprits in this in this case are the Israeli intelligence officers who adhered to the conception until the very last moment, the conception that said that Egypt will not go to war with Israel without getting the MiG-23. And, and uh, they didn't believe what they see in their eyes. They, we, we had all the information about the Egyptian deployment for war. We had the information that they are going to war, and we still didn't believe it. What's the legacy of the Yom Kippur War? What actual changes did it make to Israeli intelligence? It could be the structure or processes or staffing or culture. How did it change Israeli intelligence? There were some uh, administration. I mean, they changed the structure of the Israeli intelligence community a little bit. Now the Mossad is also... Uh, responsible for national intelligence estimates. In 1973, the, the military intelligence had a monopoly. This now it doesn't hold a monopoly anymore. There were some other, uh, they, they established the devil's advocate uh, department in military intelligence. The main difference is uh, that uh, if until uh, 1973, um, we had to uh, a more, uh, we, we suffered from uh, what we call a Pollyanna syndrome. Uh, after uh, 73, we suffered from Cassandra syndrome. And each time that the, <laughs> something seems to be changing in the Arab world, immediately military intelligence provided the war warning. And even when Sadat came to the historical visit in Jerusalem in 1972, Seven, uh, military intelligence didn't believe that it is a genuine uh, peace uh, initiative and he uh, uh, warned the policymaker that this is just a cover for an Egyptian intention to launch another war. 
So you can see how it moved from one extreme to the other after after the, the war. This is the main change, and I think that it stayed with us until until today. And what what's the mood like in Israel surrounding the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War? What's your finger on the pulse of Israeli society with regards to the Yom Kippur War? We had many wars. This is the only war that we remember. This is the most traumatic event in Israeli history, at least until recently, because as you may know, uh, we now go through a major uh, domestic crisis. No one knows yet how it's going to end. We hope that it won't end with another war. Um, but um, if you ask an Israeli who knows a little bit about Israeli history, what's the, the, the most traumatic event in Israeli history, he would tell you the Yom Kippur War. It is remembered as such. Every year in Yom Kippur, the, the uh, special editions of the, the papers, and then they do something in the media, thing like that. Obviously, now that it is the 50th anniversary, uh, there is a lot of, of noise about it. Um, and I think it will be remembered as such also in the future. I hope that we won't uh, need to replace it with another traumatic event. Uh, I really hope so. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks ever so much for your time. I've really enjoyed speaking Thank to you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up on next week's show. The 2,000 odd people that uh, have graduated the service in Sayyid Matkal tend to look at, uh, at uh, problems or uh, challenges in life in general as, uh, as the, you know, nothing is impossible to resolve or get a good answer for. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast at spymuseum.org or on Twitter at INTL Spycast. If you go to our page, thecyberwire.com slash podcasts slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. I'm Aaron Dietrich, and your host is Dr. Andrew Hammond. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Vaughn III, Emily Coletta, Afua Anakwa, Emily Renz, Ariel Samuel, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, and Jen Ivan. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artifacts, the International Spy Museum. Spy Museum.